Hi everyone, and welcome to The Change Review with Carl McGregor. Did you see the recent report from the International Panel on Climate Change? Called Global Warming of 1.5 Degrees, it was reviewed by 570 experts and government representatives hailing from 71 countries, and the message of the report has sent us into a bit of a spin. The key idea that can be extracted from the publication is that, without a doubt, Global temperatures are rising, and basically, we're running out of time to pull ourselves back from the brink. The thing is, the impacts of global warming are kind of scary. Think more violent storms, harsher and more frequent droughts, loss of coral reefs, sea level rise, freshwater scarcity, extreme heat waves. These things are all going to be impacting global populations and ecosystems. You and I both know we've been seeing evidence of these impacts already. Just to break it down for you, we've already warmed up by 0.8 degrees since pre-industrial levels, and the 2015 Paris Agreement agreed that 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels was the maximum we could reach. The difficult pill to swallow is that our current predicament is taking us towards a massive 3 degree rise or more. Essentially, if we want to stick to 1.5 degrees, we need to drop our global greenhouse gas emissions by 60% by 2030. That's 12 years, people. It's these kinds of reports that can make me want to just calmly get into bed, pull the covers over my head and hope it will all go away. But then I'll have a conversation with somebody like Jodie Newcomb from her creative organisation Carbon Arts and there will be a light of hope, inspiration and possibility flickering out there at the end of the tunnel. Based in Melbourne, Australia, Carbon Arts is all about finding creative solutions for climate change. Bringing together arts, science, economics and technology, Carbon Arts fosters collaboration and communication between these disciplines themselves and with the greater public to encourage engagement with environmental challenges. Jodie and I talk about the relationship between society and art, the vital role that art and culture play in shaping our response to climate change, and the power of collaboration and community. If you want to find out more about Carbon Arts, you can find them at carbonarts.org and I've put the link in the track description for you. I've been interviewing organisations um, about the concepts of change and mobilisation of individuals, you know, because this seems like that's, mm. like that's like the key kind of challenge, this is like this key obstacle that we need to get past when it comes to um, like uh, effective sustainable development and effective sustainable future is how the everyday person can actually contribute and where where they fit in because I think there's quite a lot of um, it's quite a lot of like messages around what an individual should be doing um, and I don't know if that's always necessarily particularly helpful to the cause or it's kind of can be potentially a bit overwhelming or people just don't care you know there's so many reasons why individuals may not be engaging with what's needed yeah. and what's expected so yeah so I kind of re recognize that I'm not an expert and there are so many amazing inspiring organizations and people out there who are actually like working on implementing practical change um, and engaging individuals in various ways and recognizing that we don't have like guidelines as such but we're just going to throw ourselves into it anyway and just put one foot in front of the other um, so that's that's sort of what I've been what I've been doing yeah, I did a, my undergrad was in chemical engineering. Wow. At the time I studied, there was no environmental engineering available except at master's level. So I wanted to do environmental engineering, thinking that that was um, a good start to, you know, helping 
to you know reshape society in a sustainable mm. way um and that seemed the best pathway there. But my instincts at the time told me I wanted to study art and science together. Yeah. But the opportunities to do so, I guess they were there, but they weren't really. They weren't so yet, clear. So make it up a bit. I'm, I feel like I feel like it's definitely something that's become more. It's come to the fore. Like I, th- I feel like um, even a few years ago, you had to really dig in order to be able to kind of piece together what you needed to do in order to go down this path. Yeah, that's right. And and it's so nice to see these days that environmental st- or studies masters, like, because mm, yeah. I think we're increasingly seeing that all of the, you know, the interdisciplinarity is is essential for solving so today's key. problems um, and that we've just been siloed for too long and that we're really suffering from that myopia and the lack of imagination and creative cross you know, cross-pollination from different sectors. Yeah, and absolutely. And that sort of gets to the heart of, I guess, how we practice as an organisation, Carbon Arts. We try to get people working together that don't normally work together. Um, I mean, it's not that that's a driving um, imperative or design factor in what we do, but it comes just it comes about by nature of what we try to do in that we try to bring art into public space and in doing so, you have to work with a whole bunch of different stakeholders who aren't used to working together. Even though public art is a very um, established medium, mm. what we're trying to introduce is a, is a different, more experimental form of public art often that engages technology and science um, and and tries to bring, um, yeah, in different ways, try, tries to bring different industries into conversation. So, so it how- works. I mean, it works in the sense that people are very... Um, people involved really enjoy the process and often the process itself is the transformative part. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask just from what you say, it's got me thinking, how do you actually, how do you bring all these different industries together? I mean, from what, I mean, obviously like I'm, I'm studying at the moment, so it's very, everything I have, all the information I have is very kind of theoretical. It's stuff that I've, I've read in reports and that kind of thing. And from what I, the research that I've done so far, it seems that, yes, collaboration and integration and um, this kind of like cross-pollination between different industries is so pivotal to, like, to the future. But what we struggle with is these different, the different sort of like frames of reference, different frameworks, different like ways that these different industries approach their disciplines, like bringing those all together is sometimes like the key challenge in actually getting, I mean, how do you get everybody to work together? How do you get everybody to sort of look at each other across the table and say, okay, this is what we're going to do? Um, Well, it's a matter of, I suppose, understanding what is in it for everybody. Like everyone has to have some skin in the game and they need to also be able to get something out of it. And what one stakeholder gets out of a project might be completely different to another. So I'll give you an example. Mm. Um, One of the projects we realised in the city of Sydney 2013 was um, a public art commission called Building Run. And it came out of a project with the city of Sydney, which we devised together through conversations that we'd had, you know, through um, Carbon Arts approaching the city directly and saying, look, we can see this amazing model um, of practice from around the world and we'd really like to work with you to see if we can realise something similar here. And so inspiring the city from the beginning in the process of developing a project and they um, um, 
I mean, they were interested from both a public art perspective and a sustainability perspective, but often I find it's actually the sustainability people who are really aware of the need to do things differently. They're aware of the power of art and communications in, in reaching the public and that, you know, community engagement's key for a council, for example. Um, so the, the directive of that project was how do we get sustainability um, progress, so the, what the city has put out there in terms of their strategy, how the communities responded, how, how are we going, you know, how, how are we progressing on this and how can we engage more people in the process of, of reaching those goals. And so that was called Sensing Sydney and out of that, well, part of that anyway, there were a few outcomes, but part, one of the outcomes was a public art commission. Hmm. And the winning proposal was Building Run, which was a proposal for a multi-video art installation that pitched different buildings against each other in a race for energy efficiency. So it needed real-time data in order to um, communicate the real-time performance of buildings and to pitch them in, a, in this race with literally avatars on a screen racing and performing. And the, and the performance of that was, was beautiful. You know, it, it really brought the aesthetic of art and that kind of uh, mesmerising use of video um, in a really slow and then a really, you know, like different sort of sense of time and movement in relation to, I guess, the pulse of the, of the city, this energy use. Yeah. Um, and so a key partner of that, and we, we specified in Sensing Sydney that data was a really key input to the process, and that's one of the, I guess, underlying, underlying thematics we've explored a lot in Carbon Arts is the use of data and technology to bring us into connection with resource use and, and nature. And so one of our partners was Investor Property. Their interest in the project was both profiling and marketing their leadership in this field of, of uh, sustainable management of buildings because they rent out buildings and one of the key property managers in, in the space. Um, was Deutsche Bank Property, who were the key tenants in the building that we uh, – sorry, Deutsche Bank, not Deutsche Bank Property. Um, they're a really interesting organisation because they are one of the biggest collectors of contemporary art and they also are a carbon-neutral organisation. So oh. across those two points, they were really um, – they saw the project, the art project, as a way of combining those two aspects of their business and their values. Um, and a really key partner was – Buildings Alive, which was a, an organization that came out of investor property but um, focuses entirely on giving real-time building management information to property managers or to building managers um, in order to help them improve the performance of the building. So they share data across a number of buildings um, who are participating and to, to say, for example, hey, this property is really like yours and they've just done this to improve their performance and so you can expect the same effect if you if you follow this um, sort of actions. Oh, that's genius. Um, and so Buildings Alive were quite new at the time and they were really interested in the project because they saw it as a way to demonstrate what they do, uh, the abilities of their system and their platform and also to engage more buildings in their um, portfolio. Hmm. Um, so those, yeah, in City of Sydney, obviously, you know, their, their objectives from the start were about the community engagement and, and marketing of their, um, you know, their sustainability strategy. So all of those partners are quite, um, they're engaged through different objectives, I suppose. Yeah, I see what you mean. And it's about... They've all got yeah. a different, like, um, uh, outcome in mind, but everybody's working together towards the same goal, ultimately, right? 
Yeah, and they all have great expectations, which mm-hmm. is a challenge of working in this space because you're, um, as the you know the director, project director, and um, you know managing the project, trying to um, ensure that everyone's expectations are met. And sometimes there are conflicts between them, like what meeting one person's objectives might actually compromise another's. Um, and at the same time, creating space for the artist to really feel some sense of freedom, creative license and freedom to do something which is going to engage the public. And that's kind of magic, you know, that, that sort of alchemic space where um, there's a lot of uncertainty and risk involved mm. because it's a tall order for an artist to bring all of these commercial and public engagement and sustainability and, you know, then, you know, have all the wow factor of the art and there's, it's a big, you know, it's a big ask. And so not everyone's up to that task. And so it's difficult, you know, it's a big challenge for me to be able to develop over time a knowledge of the art sector to, to understand who's capable of doing that, who has the skill set that actually crosses design, technology, and art. Yeah. And, you know, it's is enjoyable to work with. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's precious, that's, you know, that's another all thing. All these so. things. So it's, um, it's a very long-term project, that sort of management of relationships. Mm. Um, and that project actually, you know, the, the relationships were key, and those relationships went well beyond that particular project. There were relationships I had fostered in other projects or, you know, over time people become aware of what we do and they, they seek engagement and they understand what it's about. And so it's really like a really long-term seeding of the field, if you like. I call it, you know, um, maintaining or developing a resilient ecology of stakeholders because it is like a little ecosystem and, you know, like a mutualistic evolving um, ecology, mm. like, you know, like other other non-human entities we um need to see you know we need to all get benefit from it and we need to give back as well so it's that kind of relationships and understanding that yeah and i um i'm curious about the creativity aspect because you jody you don't have a particularly um creative background in terms of your undergrad you said you did chemical engineering is that that's correct right yeah and then i did then I did um, environmental economics. Mm-hmm. That was my mainstay for about 15 years. I studied environmental economics, which led me into policy, advice, analysis, um, research. But a lot of that research actually came down to um, public engagement, so measuring people's preferences for different mm-hmm. outcomes in, with regard to um, the environment, so water, water quality outcomes, um, biodiversity outcomes, all sorts of um, impacts. And a lot of that also relied on visualisation of scenarios. So one of the most sophisticated projects we worked on in the UK was with um, this virtual reality centre at um, the University of East Anglia where participants in a survey would go into like a theatre-type environment and have buttons on their chairs and they would see on this film different... They'd fly over a landscape... Um, that represented different agricultural policies over time. So if we went for, say, you know, a climate change-driven agricultural policy where we tried to maximise outcomes for carbon sequestration, this is what our landscape would look like. If we went to maximise biodiversity, this is what it would look like. And people would vote um, seeing these scenarios. It's a very visual, visionary kind of um, aesthetic engagement. So that really interested me, that kind of ability of aesthetics and design, essentially, um, to to in, both inform and shape 
what you know what we did as a society at a policy level. Yeah. So my my PhD now, which I'm studying in the School of Design, is actually bringing those elements together. So the title is designing interfaces between nature, the public, and policy, the role of the creative producer. So now I see myself um, as a creative producer and as a strategic designer. So I bring together these relationships and these um, around these projects, and we, I design these projects in order to help shape and understand where we want to go to as a society. So it's, I, I think there's a trajectory there, but at, you know, at a very personal level, mm. um, I come from a family of both artists and scientists. So I think I'm shaped by my early experiences of childhood too. Yeah, absolutely. To sort of bring those two together. Um, I mean, I, I, the kind of the idea of bringing science and art together fascinates me. I think it's, it's like genius, like some of the projects you've been talking about that Carbon Arts is working for. Um, have, have been working on and that kind of thing um, and I kind of what from what I understand about a lot of like a scientific the more sort of scientific approach was this kind of like the classic approach towards you know protecting the environment and that kind of thing um, there are a lot of it's they're kind of they like their metrics and their measurements and this is how we know something is successful um, because you can kind of put numbers to it and you can um, address it in that way do you think there's an equivalent to these kind of metrics for success um, in the creative space? And if, like, if, do you think it's even possible or necessary? Um, yeah, look, it's a really good question. And it's one that's um, been with me for some time because I, I do come from that sort of positivist um, scientific stance at the start of my career and, and my training, you know, with the engineering, the economics, it's all about, yes, everything's measurable, um, and everything is uh, everything should be measurable because if we don't account for it, mm. it's not accounted for. And and that's that was sort of the mantra of environmental economics was, you know, to to provide a response to people who were concerned about this um, uh, the monetization of nature, which is what environmental ec economists do. Um, the answer was well, if you don't monetize it, then it doesn't go into um, decision-making, because decision-making in government is currently very, um, you know, evaluation metric-based. Hmm. And it's just fascinating because I've, you know, since I've sort of stepped out of that field, and I think also as society and, and some really fantastic thinkers have begun to sh shine a light on what really is a sort of scientism, you know, a sort of religion of science in a sense, that science can answer all the questions and, and everything can be measured and everything... Uh, that isn't measured, isn't there, has has really become uh, debunked, I suppose. And and now we're seeing, in fact, that there are other ways, you know, that there that values and culture and um, aesthetics and um, you know religion and all, all these other ways of getting gaining knowledge and understanding the world are equally uh, relevant and equally important. And that there, you know, these sort of three separate realms, if you like, the sort of philosophical the scientific and the, and the spiritual, um, we're starting to kind of see connections there as well. But um, it's difficult because I think what, you know, all of these movements really are, are just very strategic. So environmental economics, um, and you see it a lot with environmental activist organisations too, they'll create an argument that's going to win a political point or, or, or push progress at a particular time in history. So if you're trying to convince 
people with lots of power that they should, um, you know, preserve a national park or stop, you know, deforesting the Amazon, um, then you'll use, you know, like you'll use a set of arguments that are going to sway someone at that time. The mm. problem is it's a very dynamic space and, and power changes and, and the way we think of the world changes. And so if you get stuck in that old way of, of thinking, that old paradigm, then then it loses its power and, in fact, you could lose the entire movement. So um, it's probably a long-winded way of saying no. that um, I think that culture uh, and, and, the, and the arts have been undervalued as... as um, bodies of knowledge and, and of ways of, um, of actually providing solutions, even though a lot of the art sector would, would abhor the idea that art is a solution to something. <laughs> That's actually a clear division, I think, in the arts world, and it's been one for a long time, that a lot of artists work very pragmatically in the world in the sense that they are they want to be part of a solution, they want to be part of shaping the world, and that's where environmental art sits currently. Yeah. Um, but the ways of doing that, you know, sometimes you can't measure so well. And even if you did, not to say that you can't measure them but and that you shouldn't measure because I think in my own projects I do try to observe and measure how people interact and from that deduce better ways of engaging, better ways of producing. Hmm. Um, but to say that a project, um, you know, has this impact and therefore has this value I think is complex because as I, as I alluded to earlier, sometimes the only measurable um, or observable value that you can uh, deduce is in the in the cohort of people actually involved in the production. But the sort of anecdotes and feedback we get from those people are quite profound, you know, that, that people working in, in science have found totally new ways of seeing their work because they've had an artist in residence in their lab or, um, you know, people who are working in government have had the opportunity to have a conversation with people across the table in different um, either commercial or other um, organizations that they would never otherwise had a chance to speak to. And so you're kind of doing the sort of catalyzing and tra like individual transforming as well that um, it's sort of a, it is an act of faith sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but I think also one of the, I'll tell you what, one of the things that I've started to feel is a powerful way of describing this work is, um, it actually comes from something I read recently by Tim Flannery um, in his book Here on Earth. And he talks about evolution and the challenges we face as a species, the sort of existential crisis we have in facing climate change, the fact that we are essentially destroying ourselves and our, our culture and our, and our way of being in the world is, um, yeah, is self-destroying. So mm. what does that mean? You know, is a, it is a sort of existential crisis. So he looks at, he kind of comes up with, I think one of the most um, profound things he says is that our greatest opportunity or chance for survival is actually cultural evolution. And that culture and the stories that we tell ourselves and the values and the way that we see ourselves are um, capable of rapid mutation, just like genetic mutation. And it's called, you know, cultural memes and memology, that idea that um, these ideas can replicate really fast and, and change the way that we that we are in the world and we know that that's powerful we know that the way that we live our lives has powerful impact on, on the planet so if we can somehow um, focus on our value our culture the stories we tell ourselves and allow that to spread rapidly hmm. um, you know that that's a process which really like the 
chaos theory or something has the ability to, to, to have large-scale impact. And it's unpredictable too. So I, I think the arts can operate in that space of spreading ideas, spreading um, visions and alternatives for the way that we live um, and, yeah, and, and sort of start to change and question our identities. Arts are really good at mirroring our values questioning our values and and also telling stories um and that's just like for humans that's really powerful stuff absolutely and i mean it must be so inspiring for you to feel like you're kind of at the helm of such uh i mean just like transformative processes you know where you're saying that people are coming away from you know these these uh, projects saying that they're seeing things in a totally different way and that kind of thing that must be pretty motivating for you to just to keep going forward even if it's not necessarily so easy to put things in a neat little box and say okay this is how we're evaluating it like I guess um, yeah that must be quite exciting for you to see um, yeah look I guess that's the those are the stories that keep you going. Um, mm. It's not easy working in the arts. It's not um, a lucrative profession. Um, and if you are making up a new model every time, there's no, you know, there's no cookie cutter approach. So it's um, often the case that you you work very long hours and you don't really see that same reward that you would in another sector financially. Sure. Um, so you do kind of live on the on those moments of. Um, <laughs> those yeah. stories and, and those moments of, of success but um, yeah I think also to, it's worth noting that the you know the institutions that we work with um, in the big companies like you know the big developers or even the you know the governments that we work with their cultures really need to change and they're the cultures of another century another mindset and you know, universities probably the same. You know, they're just big behemoths, and people working in those organisations have a high turnover rate. And mm. so, it's very it's very challenging when you have a project that often takes years to achieve. Like working in in the public realm in development, for example, you know, a, a housing development might take years and years and years to come about. And if you're working at the you know, in that space. Um, it's very hard to maintain momentum and to, and to maintain that, as I said, resilient ecology of stakeholders because of that rapid turnover of staff and the, and the, and the sort of, yeah, I mean, that, that sometimes the values of those organisations aren't commonly held and you really just have to rely on individuals who have a particular vision and finding those individuals within an organization is challenging enough, yeah, yeah. but then ones that also have the power within the organization and that ones that have the staying power as well. So it's a really, it's a very dynamic space and often can feel like, you know, yeah, pushing shit uphill. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, absolutely. So, I mean, in, with, with that in mind, what motivates you? I mean, is it these moments where you're kind of like, yeah, we're bringing people together and we're moving forward as a society um, or do you have kind of personal reflections that help you get out of bed in the morning? Because it sounds it sounds tough. Yeah. Look, I think I think that art is a is a space where I suppose if any any profession was um, oh no that's probably not true I don't have an experience of all professions and lots of professions I think have that very like giving nature I suppose if you're working in the health industry or if you're working you know it's in a space where you need to be giving a lot if you're in education I suppose it's a very similar thing you know we don't I mean it's 
totally tragic in society that all of those professions that are the most giving and the most rewarding at a human level are the least remunerated. Um, and I hope it's something that we address soon because it's, um, you know, it's essential to for us to survive as a society if we really value those professions. And art's one of those, you know, it's that the value of it is at that level of, of individual engagement where you see the delight on someone's face when they encounter the work or, or your intentionality around the work is, is understood and, and has the effect that you want. And, and mm. you know, like I suppose with any arts production, there's that amazing moment where it all comes together and it's, you know, like it's a theatre production or there's a huge number of challenges to overcome. And, you know, if you have ever been in that space when you go and see something or experience a performance or a production, you're so grateful because you just know how much blood, sweat and tears has gone into it. Yeah. Um, so it's a giving it's a giving culture and I suppose that, you know, that as humans that's probably where we thrive the most is when we are giving and receiving um, in that way. But, yeah, it's not – it has to be sustainable. And so finding, a, you know, a personal life balance and a financial, um, you know, sufficiency is mm. is an ongoing challenge. But, you know, I suppose it, if you're going to be a poet, you can't expect to be a millionaire. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess so. I, I, I suppose from the outside – I'm sort of sitting here thinking, wow, you're amazing, all this stuff that you do, but uh, you're kind of also giving me a bit of insight into the blood, sweat and tears, as you say, that you put into it. Um, and, yeah, I think I think there's so much that needs to change about the way, like, society approaches or values art and culture. Um, and, yeah, I mean, at least, at least Carbon Arts feels like they're kind of at the forefront of that change because you're that whole like bringing the science in with the art and really kind of pushing pushing for that collaboration it sounds like you're onto something good but that's you know that's just from my you know humble two cents worth oh that's it's <laughs> lovely to hear i mean i think i yeah in the bigger picture um in fact, I saw this online, I saw this presentation for a UNESCO conference on the, the role of culture in, in human development. Um, and there was a presentation by uh, an American guy. Um, forgive me, I can't remember where he, who he was speaking on behalf of, but he had a Venn diagram that showed, well, first of all, it was just a series of big circles and small circles on a screen that showed how much the government was spending on defence and transport and environment and all these big budgets compared to art, which was just a minuscule pinprick in comparison. Um, and then he suggested, you know, embedding those bud art budgets in those organisations. So have an art budget within transport, within defence, within um, environment and and having those overlap. Um, so having a much bigger, or maybe the Venn diagram is like the big, bigger arts budget, but it's actually funded by all of those other budgets it's not seen as separate you know and mm. I think that's really key that we start to see the value through those those personal experiences of, of other disciplines and other sectors enjoying working with art and seeing whether or not they even know what the value is they they, they are attracted to it art is an attractor it's disarming it's it's fun it can be you know really um just a, a really great way to spend an afternoon at work instead of, you know, going and doing another boring meeting on energy efficiency, you get to talk about, you know, an art project. So that, you know, if, if we could somehow embed art more into those organisations, increase the budget and therefore understand 
the relationships better and what, mm. what art offers in those different contexts. You know, and we see it we see it in um, policies like percent for public art in the US and Canada in particular. Every time there's an infra- public infrastructure spend, mm. whether it's on wastewater treatment or highway development or, you know, upgrading the local fire station, there's a public art budget. And that's been very interesting, I think, to see, particularly as you engage the more environmental artists to partner, you actually see solutions being developed, like, you know, the um, poetic potential of public utilities. Um, There's a really interesting project in Canada where for the water... Um, utility company there they thought okay well instead of every time we do a project we have to come up with an art arts engagement or arts spend let's pool it together over the next 10 years and say okay we have this many million dollars for art and we'll do a really strategic programmatic approach to engaging the public in understanding their connection to their water system understanding that they're actually part of a river system they're embedded within it Mm. but how you know when they put water down the sink this is where it goes this is where the water comes from and there you see that embeddedness of art pro arts and arts funding sorry um you know an organization that's about water delivery and treatment and then the inclusion of the arts budget within that actually you you start to see the value in the relationship and and because it actually is it has a budget and it has a has a meaning otherwise you're sort of dependent on you know an arts council being able to make all these decisions across all the different sectors and 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 hand out minuscule amounts of money which really there's nothing sustainable about being given you know thirty thousand dollars to do something which really needs three hundred thousand you're just kind of setting it up for failure and that's unfortunately how i feel sometimes yeah i'm doing lots of different projects yeah it's like okay i'd love to have the buddy to take this forward i think it could be really transformative but i can't constantly be raising money otherwise um you know you're all your all your energies are just dissipated yeah um oh what was I going to say about what you were just saying um it must be it must be quite exciting when you do see these um these like embedded arts public arts budgets and that kind of thing with public works programs because I guess you know it's like as we were talking about before this whole idea of you know, evaluation and, and, you know, measurement and that kind of thing. Um, in comparison to that, arts can seem like quite a risk, I guess, for um, mm. policymakers and that kind of thing. So investing in art or throwing yourself at the mercy of, of artists and creativity and kind of, I guess, trusting that they have the ability to um, engage with people where maybe you can't, must, it must be difficult, right? Like to kind of give them a budget because, but then it's really cool to see that that budget is actually creating something good. It is actually working um, because I guess that means that more and more policymakers, organisations will see the value of art and will not be so scared to support the the, art, the artists and the the environmental artists and art as a um, as a, a field, I guess. Yeah, and uh, I mean, going back to the point I made earlier about you know how in different different moments in history, sometimes you do just have to use the arguments or the paradigm of the status quo in order to appeal and and receive the oxygen you need to survive. Um, 
I suppose, you know, having some metric is, you know, is, is important and, and it, it is it is still possible to, at the very least, um, collect those anecdotes and, and the feedback from the audience and the participants just to create that um, that story, but as much as possible, get those people in positions of power to actually have the experience of being there and, and mm. seeing what it is. Um, but I do find, like in terms of paradigms, I'm finding, particularly as I do my research within the design profession, that um, that, that profession's quite useful um, for framing this work because it is a strategic agenda-driven practice, so it's not art for art's sake and, um, you know, it, it's a particular, I suppose, um, engagement with art, which is which is pragmatic in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the particular paradigm I'm using at the moment is this um, transition design um, framework, which was developed by um, Cameron Tonkin-Wise and Terry Irwin from um, Carnegie Mellon, but now I think he's at University of New South Wales, Cameron Tonkin-Wise. And it looks at sort of just a in a way, a cyclical um, series of uh, undertakings or frameworks to transition society to a more sustainable outcome. And you look at uh, your posture and mindset, so you become radically aware of the bias that you contain as an individual or as an organisation, and you try to become more transparent about you know, how you operate and, and where your bias might exist and what you've kind of learnt in error, so to speak. Mm. Um, so as an economist, you might say, well, actually, I realise now the history of economics is full of mistakes that we still carry with us and maybe we need to rethink some of the assumptions that we make and we need to um, open ourselves up to other professions. And so interdisciplinarity is a key um, part of that transition design framework to open yourself up to other disciplines have a really good understanding of your theory of change, which is the next part of that cycle. So Mm. looking at different theories of change, understanding how things happen from different perspectives, um, and and then having a vision for um, the future. So um, art's really good at a few of those things already, like art also helps us to be more aware of who we are. Um, It helps us to... um, um, with its own theory of change, if you like, you know, the sort of the, the cultural values-based um, understanding of who we are and our identity and how identity shapes the world. And then um, in terms of um, vision, I mean, art, artists are fantastic. The great history of artists looking into the future of the environment and just, you know, picturing literally mm. what a new renewable energy landscape looks like, you know, the Land Art Generator Initiative which is the project I've just finished, you know, looking at renewable energy installations that are works of public art. You know, let's imagine that, in fact, instead of these bland carpets of PV cells across the landscape, we can actually have a really beautiful, culturally sensitive, community-engaged public art-style installation of renewable energy um, and what that would mean for the success of this new industrial revolution. Um, and then the final thing is new ways of designing. And it's all about, you know, taking risks and, and being able to prototype and, and accept that things will fail mm. and that your first go at it's not going to always be successful. And I think art, in a way, needs to learn from that part of it too in the sense that, you know, don't give up after the first art project, you know, and consider with your stakeholders and, in fact, the art itself while being risky you know deserves more iterations too okay what did we learn from that how can we feed into the next one 
Um, and yeah, that's sort of part of this whole way of redesigning. So mm. you feed all of that back into, once again, you know, that cycle you go around. Um, mm. So yeah, I, I find that, that sort of having that a paradigm or some kind of process is just very appealing to people with money. <laughs> um, not, you know, notwithstanding the fact that it is important to us as humans to be able to anchor ourselves in some um, methodology. I think, you know, acting in the world, you do need the methodology. And I, I think yeah. the design profession is a good, and design research is a good way of doing that for um, this, yeah, sustainable futuring that we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just bringing it, back to the individuals um, and individual behavior and that kind of thing. Um, I want to know, if, just even just from your opinion, why you think that maybe it's so difficult for people to change their behavior and change their lifestyle choices to be more sustainable? What do you think? Um, it's interesting. I'm about to give a presentation at a conference in November in the Energy Efficiency uh, National Conference in Australia. And uh, it, it's fantastic because the organiser of the conference, um, Rob Murray Leach, he's, he understands the value of culture in this equation and he sees it as like this massive untapped toolbox that we have. And he starts, he starts out the session, or we will start out the session with um, a report from or research findings from a study of really behavior change in psychology, what, why, you know, asking that very question. And what the researcher finds um, is that in a way we, we don't um, shape our beliefs. We don't, we don't shape our behavior on the basis of our beliefs. And in fact, a lot of people shape uh, their beliefs on the basis of their behavior. <laughs> oh, so whatever's sort of comfortable and easy and what everyone else is doing, we'll, we'll find a way of justifying it. Right. And right. Uh, maybe that maybe that a basic challenge of human behavior. So so the result of that finding is, or the challenge is, actually getting people to be peer pressured by others to do something differently. So in fact, people are more motivated by what the person next door is doing. If they feel that um, they're they're doing the right thing and no one else is, they'll peer pressure those people to, to do. Like with water restrictions we found in Australia, there are severe water restriction rules in place and your neighbour's not doing what they should. It becomes this sort of, you know, dog on your neighbour thing. But also in a very positive way, there's a, uh, a bit of research about hotels and green hotel practices that if you leave a notice out saying everyone else in this um, hotel is, um, I can't remember how it's, how it's worded, but they're putting their towels um, they're, they're reusing the towels instead of leaving them out to be washed every day. Oh. Would you like to do the same? Then people will always say yes, you know. Um, so, so yeah, that's the sort of interesting thing about um, human behaviour that is confronting because I'm sure we all do it to some extent mm. and we all, you know, are unaware of our biases and, in fact, the whole world's becoming sort of scary in the sense that, you know, we're, all the time we spend online we're just being pushed more and more into these rabbit holes through algorithms that reinforce our own behaviours and, and just re-project to us the things that we want to hear, you know. So we're not yeah. comfortable with being challenged and we very easily find our tribe and the people who reinforce what we think. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's a challenging one. You'll have, to, you'll have to remind me what the question was again because I think I'll probably have something else to say. No, no, you actually answered. I was asking why it's so difficult for people to change their behaviour. And, I mean, we've, yeah, we've kind of 
talked about. Yeah, you definitely answered it. And I guess mm. my um, mm. my next question leading on from that is if you think that people that individuals actually have the power to make a change and what people can do in their individual lives um, that you think is the most important thing um, or some of the most important things that people can do um, as individuals in order to make a, a change? Yeah, look, it's interesting. Like, I mean, if you've been in this space for some time, you'll, you know, this word urgency is um, has been with us for for a couple of decades at least, that, you know, we only have a decade to, to address climate change. We only have five more years. Or now I think the IPCC says really there's just 12 years, you know, yes, and that yeah. probably, you know, it hits home harder because of the people who are saying it, you know, they're not the environmental activist organisations, they're, they're the level-headed scientists. So so the sense of urgency is it's paralysing too um, because a lot of things that are worth doing take time. Um it takes time to convince a whole bunch of disparate groups to do something together, um, and and we don't have that time. So it's a, it's really confronting, and and a lot of people talk about the um, you know the need for a kind of green Apollo mission where all those efforts we put to putting someone on the moon or to um, get, exiting from World War Two and you know, all of those massive challenges that mobilized people in ways that they've never seen before um, need to be now applied to solving the climate crisis. Mm. And I think there is something to that to sort of almost suspend for a moment. So on the one hand, you've got, yeah, this Apollo mission, Apollo, Apollo mission mentality that we suspend everything and focus as a human race on, on trying to get out of this mess. Mm. Um, and on the other hand, there's a different philosophy, which is actually a, a more gentle one that, you know, really we, we have to address fundamentally what is going wrong and, like, live in a different paradigm, you know. Mm. And it's not – that kind of revolution is not going to happen top down. It has to happen bottom up and people have to start modelling what well, they already are, modelling different ways of living and that all of those little – not utopias, but they're kind of like mini utopias, and there's a philosopher calls them heterotopias. This sort of blooming field of flowers, and hmm. you know, all around the world, well, suddenly you'll pop your head up and go, oh, now everyone's doing this amazing sustainable living experiment, and, yeah. and now now it's come become mainstream. Um, so I don't know. I mean, maybe a bit of both of those, but I think from a personal perspective, I'm beginning to feel like maybe that our role as citizens is most important and to use the political process where we still have one, where we still have the remnants of a democratic system um, to do that really, really difficult work of democracy, which we've given up on really. We've just sort of become very apathetic and and lazy um, to accept that if we want to be ruled by individuals who reflect our values, we have to get involved in the political process. And I'd say that was probably just as important and equally as important as, as, as taking measures in your own life to um, change your consumption behaviour to that sort of consumer-citizen balance. I think they're equally important, because not because necessarily of their impact, but because of their connection. So if you're going to advocate in your local council for more um, or you know, better curbside facilities for composting, recycling and waste management um, that reflects the way that you consume and purchase and, you know, Mm. deal with your waste. 
you have to be able to see the connection. Well, what are the, what are the alternatives you have you have available to um, buy bulk food and uh, compost in your own yard and see the value of therefore uh, investing your tax dollars in something that's more communal. Um, and then you have a really clear story to tell the policymakers and provide them with solutions instead of yeah. um, just being angry about it. So I think having that personal experience of trying things and understanding your own options and, and being that sort of inventor and, and experimenter in your own life is it's, it's a way of, in, of reinforcing the messages and, and informing the messages that you're giving to policymakers. Same with solar panels. I mean, solar panels might not be the best communal um, approach to solar energy, um, but maybe, you know, spending money on solar panels just gives you that embedded knowledge of, oh, I get it now. I have to actually yeah. do my washing in the middle of the day in order to not spend money on it and or not reduce you know, or not actually, you know, use any coal-powered energy to do yeah. that. And it, it's funny, like you kind of know those things, things intellectually, but <laughs> until you actually have that experience of it, you're not as emboldened as you would have been. So I think I think the two go together in an in a interesting kind of fashion. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, something that's kind of um, a pattern that I've noticed arising from my various conversations um, is that it's, I would, I would almost argue at this point that one of the most important things an individual can do is to reach out and be part of a community effort um, and then, like, as a community, or you kind of, uh, like, uh, you know, making sure that your values are aligning and that kind of thing, and then as a community, suddenly you're a collection of individuals, but it's almost strength in numbers, you know, your voice is that much louder. At that point, then perhaps you can start lobbying to your local politicians, at which point things can, the wheels can start turning in that fashion. So, um, you know, this is kind of an idea, like, don't do change alone, which I'm kind of hooking onto because I really enjoy that and it makes me feel like something that I can put into practice in my own life. Um, I almost feel that like it could be it could be an interesting angle for policy and that kind of thing to encourage people to become more community minded and more collaborative within, you know, a sort of slightly broader environment than just their own home, but not necessarily so huge at that point that they feel overwhelmed by the size of the problem. Do you know what I'm saying? Does that kind of resonate absolutely. with you? Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm sitting here nodding my head. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a part of the reason that that's, that's um, so important is that we're inherently social creatures and doing things alone is lonely and therefore discouraging. So mm -hmm. doing them together, it's just, um, it, it has that inbuilt in incentive that you get to be social and and um, be part of something bigger than yourself. And I think that's what we all crave. And that's something that I've experienced as well, having I've just moved to a small town in the last three years. And I love the fact that there is that, uh, because there's a smaller community here, there's many more conversations that feel like they, they cover the full gamut of possibilities, if you, if you know what I mean. Mm. But that doesn't mean it's not a small town that, that, requires, that requires that either. It's... Um, but it's interesting, we created a, an initiative here called Democracy for Dinner, where we just started having conversations around the dinner table, inviting different people to join us in a public space for a conversation on a particular topic of political um, 
interest and then it sort of morphed into how do we create more participatory decision making, um, get involved in questioning our candidates for office, um, actually getting more people to run for office and supporting them and, and creating that connection between community and um, and, and and politics. So I feel that's quite um, that's quite a rewarding thing because I also love the people that I'm doing that with and the conversations, you know, that sort of yeah, that are really enlightening and, and they feed you. Yeah, such a great idea. I love that. What's it democracy over Look dinner? Look it up, right? democracy for dinner. Democracy it's got a, for it's dinner. got a cool logo. <laughs> <laughs> oh well then. <laughs> no, that's really cool. Oh awesome. Well Jody, thank you so much for talking to me for the past hour or so. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your morning. Um, and I won't, oh, it's such a pleasure. I won't grill you for much longer. I just would love to know if there's any anything else that you feel like we haven't covered that you'd really been bursting to mention or something you wanna you wanna say before we sign off that you feel like hasn't been mentioned, maybe. Um, look, probably not. We covered a lot of ground, and thank you so much for the opportunity. I have to say. Um, I'm really looking forward to having the recording because um, I find that conversation is a wonderful way of um, processing ideas. Yeah. And it's if we're talking about loneliness, uh, doing your PhD is probably one of the loneliest things you can do. Yeah. And the incentive to actually um, you know, put your thoughts down on paper is diminished. And I think that you know, through that solo journey, I suppose, and I think a lot of writers you know, struggle with that. But... Um, having these conversations is just a great way to um, yeah, reinvigorate and, and air the research that you're doing. So I really appreciate um, that opportunity. But thank you so much for yeah, the chat. Uh, you're so articulate and engaging. It's been actually a really wonderful conversation. So thank you. How amazing is Jodi? How amazing is Carbon Arts? I just love, love, love these ideas of collaboration and communication and the concept of arts and creativity as essential factors in how we move forward and face the challenges ahead. The change up, what can you do? For me, there were some really powerful takeaways from that conversation. Yes, the idea of community came up, but it's more than that. It's about collaboration on every level. Whether you're working on community gardens or composting, or you're an economist looking across the meeting table at an artist and an environmental scientist, it's becoming clear to me at least that effective sustainable change is about communication, coalition, collaboration and community. The four C's, if you will. For any progression, we need to break down barriers and boundaries and allow ourselves to be open to learning new things and foster safe spaces where this can happen. I think this also ties in with another takeaway I had from the chat with Jody. Like, we need to embrace and support art and creativity in our lives and think outside the square a little. The time has come for experimenting, investigating, innovation, trying new things, learning new things. And finally, you know, we're all in this together. Don't do change alone, remember? Reach out to your friends, motivate each other, influence each other. Don't feel like you have to do this all by yourself. So what do you think? What do you think about Carbon Arts and their creative, collaborative approach? What do you think about these ideas of community and collaboration in general? How do you think we can get people to participate in this way of thinking? And what about the relationship between society and art, and even science and art? Do you see the value in terms of finding the kinds of solutions we're looking for? Have you got any creative ideas of your own? Let me know what you think. You can leave your comments and questions in the track comments section. For those who are interested, 
I've put a few links in the track description. Tim Flannery's book, Here on Earth. Also a great article that sums up the IPCC report that I spoke about at the beginning. And the Democracy for Dinner group that Jody spoke about. Okay guys, thanks so much for listening to The Change Review with me, Cal McGregor. You can find and follow this podcast in SoundCloud. Just search for The Change Review channel. And until next time, do change a thing.